But let's go over to Hosea uh, chapter 13 in your scriptures. Hosea chapter 13, and, and we're going to cover this, this uh, text this morning. Would you do this? Would you just stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's word? I just want to read through this text of chapter 13. I'll set the background for you on this. Uh, basically, Ephraim, the largest tribe in northern Israel right here. Um, they've, you've, man, if you've been listening to this series, there's a constant of, hey, repent. Assyrian captivity is coming. Repent. I want to give you a chance. Repent, right? Well, now you kind of see in chapter 13, he almost lays out really why they won't repent. Why they choose for Yahweh to be their destroyer instead of their redeemer, right? And in the end, if you're watching online, if maybe you're watching online and, 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 and you're far from God, you don't know Jesus, like, listen, God is either your, Jesus is either your redeemer or he will be your judge, all right? It's one of two. There's no neutral ground. Either the wrath of God has been satisfied through the Son or the wrath of God still abides on you. We, we have those, that, that, those are the two diametrical things that exist. For Israel right here, you see that Israel made a choice through their idol worship that God was going to be their destroyer. Yahweh was going to be their destroyer. But what Yahweh really wanted to be their whole time is their redeemer. The whole book, he's, he's trying to show them I'm re- redeemer. What he did through the showing of, of, of Hosea and Gomer, the first three chapters, is God trying to show I'm your redeemer. Okay, just so you know, have that in your mind as we read chapter 13. Hosea says this, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made out of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist. (coughs) Or like the dew that goes early away. Like the chafe that swirls from the threshing floor. Or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I... Who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, and he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom, the, ransom them from Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. He shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samara shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her, her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Would you pray over this? 
always, Lord, we submit to your word and, and we admit this kind of literature is difficult in its poetry at the moment, in its symbolism, and trying to understand what the original recipients understood from this text so we can make a proper application today. We need your help. All the plans and preparation for this cannot, can, cannot accurately do what only the Holy Spirit illuminating, opening up, shining light on this word. Protect my lips. Make sure my interpretation is accurate, starting from how the first recipients understood. Lord, let us worship before your feet as we answer this question. Is he your redeemer or your destroyer? We trust you. And God's people said, amen. You can be seated, chapter 13. Okay, so here's what we're talking about. Is he your redeemer or is he your destroyer? Israel had every opportunity for, for Yahweh to be their redeemer. And in fact, he kind of already really was, right? They are only there in the promised land where they're at because Yahweh had already redeemed them from Egypt. Yahweh had already given them the Torah, already given them how their society from a civil and religious manner, from a sacrificial manner, was supposed to be laid out to point forward to Christ. Like Yahweh had put everything in place like it was supposed to be. But yet we find as you keep reading this book and as you read the Minor Prophets, you see this northern kingdom of Israel, they continue to rebel against him. Now here's the deal. I asked myself the question of the text. What caused them to, because in the end, if you know the story, they go into Assyrian captivity. Because in the end, they choose that Yahweh is going to be their destroyer more than their redeemer. They choose that. Now the question would be this. Why? Why? They have such a rich heritage of festivals, of recalling what God had done to rescue them from Egypt. Why in the world did they continue to choose for him to be their destroyer? Why with all the warnings that God had had? Well, I look at the text and something seems obvious. And it's kind of obvious And when you look around at life. When someone chooses for the Lord to not be their redeemer but their destroyer, what you're finding is these people inevitably have chosen idolatry. They've chosen someone, something, an idea to worship instead of the one true God. And in the end, this is how everything goes wonky in our life when we choose idols. You can see that one of the things God had warned them about. Remember the first two commandments, right? You're right? You're like, it's all about idol worshiping. Like, there's no other Lord. You can't build any graven images. Remember, like, that's the one thing. Like, if you violate the first commandments, you'll violate the rest pretty easy. It's all about idolatry. And what brought the northern kingdom down so far was their idolatry. If you read, when you read the first king, when that kingdom split and Jeroboam becomes the king, the first thing they start doing is setting up pagan idols worshiping idols. They immediately start building the golden calf. They immediately start attributing that this golden calf is what delivered us from Egypt. The same thing that Aaron did during Moses' time, which, by the way, to to me, is still the funniest thing. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and says to Aaron, like, what have you done? And Aaron's like, I have no idea. I just threw some gold in the fire, and boom, this popped out, right? I still love, I still love, you know. Doesn't that sound like your kids when they get in trouble, and they're just kind of like, I don't know how this happened. I mean, it just... You know, through this golden fire, and a calf popped out. Similar story, isn't it? But yet, here we see Ephraim, which Ephraim, in verse 1, is descriptive of the whole northern kingdom. They're the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom. Well, they, they walk into idolatry from the very beginning, and it just sets a pace to where 
Yahweh's going to be their destroyer instead of their redeemer. Because here's the deal. We all worship. Everybody worships. Now, people say like, well, no, some people don't worship. Yes, they do. Everybody worships, right? We're geared to worship. Either we'll worship a false idol, and that idol, it's not always physical. Sometimes it's just an idea. It's just a thought. I mean, it can be even politics we can worship. But there's only one true God that we should worship. If we worship that one true God, we'll walk into his redemption. We'll see that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God in our place. However, if we don't, if we worship idols, we'll worship our ideas, our desires. We'll worship anything. A a singer named Jimmy Needham in a song, he, he has this phrase, I think it's great. He said, anything that I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything you find ultimate, lasting satisfaction and joy in is an idol. So here's Israel. They walk into destruction because of idolatry. And if you're online and you're listening to this, maybe you're far from Christ. You know, someone said, it's so surprising. You can go through all the Bible college in the world, and there's some things they just don't teach you, or I guess they just don't know what to teach you. But I can remember graduating from Bible college with my bachelor degree in pastoral ministry. And I can remember talking to a guy in my church, and this guy had no Bible training. In fact, this guy knew little. I mean, he maybe only knew John 3.16. And I was frustrated about, man, it's, you know, I was just expressing to him that, man, it seems like people don't um, come to the Lord. It's like you keep telling people the gospel, but it seems like people just don't respond to him. And I was kind of just bemoaning that. And he said something to me that was like a, was like a, it was like a light bulb. <laughs> and he said, you don't know why people won't trust the Lord or come to him? Do you, you don't understand that? And I was like, no, I really can't. Like, why would you say no? This is eternal life. Like, why would you say no to this? Like, he's so much better. And he said, people won't say yes to him because they know that, that, that he'll be their Lord and they can't keep doing life the way they want to do life. Now, I know you may say, like, Nick, you should have caught that. You should, you should have caught that way before, but, but I didn't. And it's true. You know, sometimes when you minister the gospel and you're wondering why they say no, sometimes it could be from intellectual objections and they're honest. They're an honest, like doubting Thomas, kind of just asking answers. That's true. But I find most of the time, and if you're online, listen, a lot of times why people don't come after Christ is because they know that, that you can't worship two gods. You'll love one and hate the other. And intrinsically, what people know is, if I respond to Jesus, I don't get to have my idols anymore. And if you do, I'll just tell you, Here's one of the things. If you do become a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you what's going to happen. You try to walk in those idols, you'll never enjoy them again. They, they will be putrid to the taste. So here's Israel. That's their struggle. They won't come to him as redeemer because ultimately they love their idols. They love worshiping their idols. The thing that they were warned about not doing. Day one, first thing they did. Look at the text we see here in chapter 13, verse 1. And here's my first point. It was their pride that led them into the idolatry. This pride was, uh, life is all about me, exalting themselves. Now, it is true. If you look at chapter 13, verse 1, it says, When Ephraim spoke, remember this is the northern tribe, the biggest tribe, most influential. Uh, Ephraim originally comes from Joseph. And remember that Jacob put that kind of big blessing on Ephraim and that they were going to be a very dominant tribe of Israel. So it says this, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. And and the text is just telling us that Ephraim had such a dominant role, such a dominant voice, especially as the kingdom split, that people trembled. They responded to what Ephraim did. He was exalted in Israel. 
Because of the blessing, that, the, the patriarchal blessing that was on that particular tribe, they, from Jacob, you, you, they were exalted in Israel. They had a huge influence in Israel. Now here's the truth. Not everybody can take that kind of exaltation. It's true. I mean, I've had people kind of say, like, why doesn't the Lord make me rich? <laughs> like, he probably doesn't make you rich because you can't handle it. And then, of course, at that point, everybody's like, well, Lord, just test me. We'll see. <laughs> but not everybody can take it. Obviously, Israel, the, the, Israel the, the northern kingdom of Ephraim couldn't take it. It says in verse 1, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Immediately when the northern kingdom started, I mean, and by the way, Ephraim was already doing this, already, I mean, that their kings before, I mean, even Solomon with all his wives helped walk the kingdom into idolatry already. But Ephraim was hook, line, and sinker, went after Baal, which is just crazy because like one of the things of worshiping Baal was would you have to sacrifice your children. You'd have to burn your children to appease this Baal. Now, you, we might say, well, okay, so what, what led them to this? Well, it was pride. Pride leads to Israel's idolatry. And when I say pride, what I'm talking about is this. When a person is prideful, it's life is all about them. Life is all about satisfying themselves. That's a prideful person. And why did, why did, is, why did Ephraim want to keep walking in idolatry? Because their idols let them do whatever they wanted to do in their carnal flesh, right? That's what their idols had them do. And it was, it was pride. They, Israel had this exalted position. Ephraim, this exalted position. It went to their heads. They couldn't take it. They kind of thought like they were bigger. And we see this all through Scripture, don't we? Don't we see like Satan's fall is a result of his pride? Pride, uh, you know, before destruction comes pride. Pride is where you're lifting life up. It's all about you. When a person walks in humility, it's actually never about themselves. That's what's so interesting about humility. Humility is the one thing that if you have it, you don't really know you have it, right? It's like as soon as you think you're humble, then guess what? You're probably not humble. So they walk in pride. Their, they, their status that, that they were lifted up as a tribe already had a big voice. They couldn't handle it. It caused them to just worship self. And this self-worship led to in, them into idolatry. And idolatry may feel good for the moment. Sin always feels good for the moment. But sin ultimately puts you in a lot of trouble. The pleasures of sin only last for a season, the scriptures say. So first we see this. It, Ephraim, the pride leads to their idolatry. And ultimately when we say Ephraim, we're meaning Israel. Now number two is this. Israel's idolatry grows. Israel's idolatry, it grows. Pride led them into idolatry, and then that idolatry grows. Now listen, their idolatry is what led them in the end that, that Yahweh had to be their destroyer, that they went into seer and captivity. Look in, continue looking at verse 1. And now they sin more and more. See, this is what pride always does. Pride leads us into idolatry, and this idolatry leads us into being an idol factory, and we're never, ever satisfied. Like, I've seen this in marriage counseling so many times where you'll, you'll have a couple, and there'll be one that'll just say, like, if my spouse only did X, our marriage would be okay. And I would say this, like, yeah, it would help your marriage if your spouse did X, but... But if you think all your joy is dependent on your spouse doing X, you're making them a savior. And your spouse is a horrible savior. And guess what? You're, we're such idol factories that your spouse could do everything you've ever asked and wanted of them. And you'll find something to pick on and just go against it. You will. Because you can't find satisfaction in ultimately just getting what you want. The goal of life is to bring glory and joy to him. 
It's kind of this idea of hedonism, right? Have you ever heard the word hedonism? It basically means that you're all about bringing pleasure to yourself, right? That's what pride does. That's what idolatrous worship does. I mean, by the way, that's... I mean, like the idols we worship in life, we don't worship those idols because it's just um, because we have no choice. We worship those idols because we get pleasure from those idols. There's something that idol is providing, whether it's anger or lust or unforgiveness or greed or, or we're worshiping our body image or what have you. Are you with me? Do you understand that? So it never is satisfied. It always grows. It always wants more real estate. It, it always wants one more dollar. This is the idol factory. Notice, they sin more and more. Sometimes when, when we get into idolatry, we think to ourselves, well, I'll just give into this sin right here for a little bit and it will just satisfy the beast and then I'll be okay. <laughs> but does the beast come back for more? Yeah, the beast of idolatry is always hungry. Our, our pride, our self-centeredness always wants more. Now keep looking. He says over here in the next, and he says, and make for themselves. So we see pride leads to Israel's idolatry, which in the end, all this idolatry was going to lead them into to, to Yahweh being their destroyer. Israel's idolatry just grows. And now we see over here in verse 2 that Israel's idolatry evolves. Look at it. And they make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. Now, their, their idolatry has become a little sophisticated, has it not? It's now kind of evolved. It now it's becoming a little bit more acceptable. This is what idolatry does. When we worship idols in our life, when we make anything that we enjoy more than God, then what happens is we get sophisticated. Like, for instance, I've heard this recently. Someone said to me, I am not angry. I am just frustrated. Wait a minute. Yes, you are angry. You've just created some sophistication. You've done some good craftsmanship by finding another word to describe the same exact emotion that's sinful in this moment. Are, are you hanging with me? Do you understand? This is what we do with idols is we, we polish them. We get sophisticated. We develop them. We, we put them on display and even feel really, really proud of them. Israel's idolatry evolves. And by the way, it gets socially acceptable. I mean, how could you, how, so, like, so like for instance, um, and I'm not trying to pick on this one, it's just so easy in our culture to look at, but let's take the idea of, of, of homosexual marriage, right? Let's just take that idea, right? Like there's a thought that it, since it's now legal and the more and more it happens, that I had someone say to me one time, don't you know this is okay with God because the government said it's okay, right? And so then you're kind of like, well, wow, you've bought into something that, that is not in the scriptures, but... but Okay, I, I see this. So if, if, if idolatry happens in a land and everybody, it, you know, it starts getting sophisticated and seems socially and normally accepted, then it must be okay with God. This is what's happening right here. The, the idolatry that was so supposed to be warned against, they had just been building and building and creating elaborate and beautiful works of idolatrous art. It got to the point that they were like, well, this is just kind of normal. This is just kind of part of our culture. This is what idolatry does. And idolatry always leads to destruction. By the way, I told you earlier about hedonism. So hedonism is this life is all about your pleasure. And it's like, get it. 
like get as much as you can. It's all about you. And, and you can only practice that kind of hedonism if you're walking in pride, right? And that pride will lead you right into idolatry. But there's a different kind of hedonism that we can practice. And it's, it's something that John Piper years ago coined called Christian hedonism, all right? And I know that may sound like an oxymoron, like how can you say the word hedonism and Christian at the same time? That, like, what is that? Is that like some resort you visit? Like, what is Christian hedonism? Well, it's this idea that all of life is lived for the pleasure of God. Totally different. What is a humble person? A humble person is they live all of their life for the pleasure of God, right? And, and, and living life for the pleasure of God will result in you walking in a humble life. It'll result in you walking a life where you're not walking in pride. Life's not all about you. It's not about getting what you want. It's about serving others and sacrificing yourself for the glory of God and the good of others. That's Christian hedonism, right? But what we often, and people outside of Christ, it's this idea of hedonism, this get what I want. This is what idolatry does. It, It feeds this kind of animal. This is what they were doing in the text. They were practicing a hedonism of pride. And it evolves. And just because it gets more normal doesn't mean God ever just winks the eye and says, you know what, Northern Kingdom, I get it. You weren't supposed to worship idols, but man, those calves, man, you're getting very good at this. Like, not only was it gold, now it's silver. And like, wow, you've got professional idol builders now. And I'm, you know what, I just need to back off of my kind of wooden rules, right? And in Israel, you just go ahead and go at it. But that's what they were thinking, By the way, they were being warned the whole entire time. It is said of them in the text in verse 2, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves, which just means that as they were sacrificing their children to these false gods, they were doing it in worship. Now, you might be thinking like, why in the world would you burn your child to a god? Because the thought was this. If you burned your child to this Baal god, that he would give you a better crop that you would then be able to have more financial resources, right? So sometimes if you track some idolatry down, it usually tends to track itself towards the almighty dollar. Is everybody with me? You understand? Even even it was promised that if you sacrifice your children to Baal, he'll also kind of like, there are these other Baals that you could, like Baal Ashtoreth, that, that if you sacrificed your child, then you would get more children, all right? And you would be more blessed, which seems completely idiotic that like okay i'm going to kill one kid so that god so that my idol would give me 10 more kids right this but this is what happens when you're walking in this pride and idolatry so we see number 4 here's my fourth point so we see number 1 pride leads to israel's idolatry number 2 israel's idolatry it just grows number 3 israel's idolatry evolves and number 4 here's my fourth point israel's idolatry is fleeting Verse number three, it's fleeting. He says, therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes early away, like the chafe that swells from the threshing floor, or like smoke from the window. Basically, he says, these idols, they're like dew in the morning, there and gone. They're like the the chafe that, that, that disappears in the wind when you're sifting the wheat. It's like smoke that it's there one minute and it's gone. These idols are fleeting. They're vulnerable. They won't last. They won't provide anything. He's warning them. It's like, this is what your idols, like you love them. But they don't have any real substance to them. They're not going to last. They're vulnerable. And here's my deal. Why would we ever choose to worship something that's so vulnerable? That's so vulnerable. Like, so for instance, um, there's nothing wrong with having a bank account. There's nothing wrong with having a savings account. There's nothing wrong with it. 
but there's something wrong that if it captures your heart, right? Because in the end, I have still never seen like a U-Haul following a hearse, right? I've never seen Wells Fargo, you know. I've never seen anybody take their bank account. I've never seen anybody die, and then eternity, they're still like cashing checks and stuff and running their debit card through eternity. Like, it's all going to get left here someday, which just means this. We focus so much on that, and don't we realize that that actually is vulnerable? Like, you're never going to take it with you. Never. It's, It's a terrible idol to worship. Number five, point number five. Israel's idols cannot save. Israel's idols cannot save. Look at verse four. He says this. This is point number five in verse four. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. He's reminding them, hey, just so you remember, you're forcing me to be your destroyer, but, but I'm really your redeemer. Don't you remember the whole reason you're in the land to begin with is because I was the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that has actually redeemed you in the past. Like only me, only my power. None of these idols have done anything. Every piece of golden calf, every piece of silver calf, every idol that's ever been built in this, in this northern kingdom, they've done squat for you, but get the wrath of God against you. But I've delivered you from Egypt. So he says, but I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. Hosea is letting them know that the Lord, through the Lord's voice that they're delusional. These idols have never done anything of what the one true God has done. These idols have done nothing, but yet they keep running back to them. I say this all the time. There's only one good Savior. That's Jesus, right? He's the only good Savior. You know what I love about marriage is marriage really challenges you because in marriage, there's the temptation that you would try to make your spouse an idol. And how do you know that your spouse is an idol? It's because you get angry when they don't do what you want them to do, right? Which I know no one in marriage who's hearing this voice has ever experienced such things as that, right? I know this is all a choir thing. But it's also so sanctifying because it exposes where I try to make everything else a savior. There's only one good savior. Even politics is a horrible savior. You know, in, in my life, it, you know, I've, it's been so frustrating the last couple of weeks because for lots of things, but even in my own heart, um, since I came here to Memphis in 2012, man, I've been working, uh, like, for my own soul, like, as hard as I can to try to discover, like, a gospel-centered biblical approach to our current racial issues. And, and, and here's the deal. Anytime I talk about it, the, uh, you know, like, everybody, like, someone's going to get upset either way, right? It just kind of happens, right? And then I let that, like, kind of, like, 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 get in my soul, where it kind of, like, damages me for the moment because it's like you want everybody to agree with you or you want people just to hear you out but then you know what i find in the midst of that what what i'm what i'm doing sometimes is idolatry of just like well if everybody would just agree with me or if everybody just would get on this do you understand or even the idolatry that in my mind sometimes i'm like when are we going to be over with this like why are we still talking about this like that idol of just, i just want comfort are, are you, do you understand what i'm saying well yeah because those are all horrible saviors. They never satisfy. They never pull through. They never promise. They're always vulnerable. They're always fleeing. Even our politics right now, it's a bad idol. It's a bad savior. There's only one good savior. So he tells them in the text, listen, you've built all these things, but these things have never saved you guys. Only I can do that. I'm the only savior. I took you from Egypt. 
And by the way, this is why Israel keeps having their festivals, their feasts. You keep hearing them talk about Egypt because God wants them to remember. By the way, when we take communion here in just a little bit, why are we taking communion? Because this makes us more godly? No, we take communion because we're trying to remember. We're trying to remember that he's the redeemer. This is why when, when Israel would yearly celebrate the exodus from Egypt, and they would take a meal that would, it was their own communion. It's them remembering that, that all the little false gods they try to worship aren't the real saviors. There's only one savior that actually delivered them from Egypt. When we take communion, we're saying there's only one savior that could ever deliver us from sin. So number six. So here's what we've learned so far. Pride led to Israel's idolatry, which by the way, every sin leads at the core of every sin is pride. Why did Adam and Eve fall? Pride. Pride leads to Israel's idolatry. Israel's idolatry grows. Israel's idolatry evolved. Israel's idolatry is fleeting. Israel's idols, they cannot save them. And I'll even say number six, Israel's idol, idols, they cannot sanctify. Now the word sanctify means to be set apart from sin. Now look in verse five. I thought this was interesting. He says, it was I who knew you in the wilderness. Now, if you know anything, Israel wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe God, that God could take them into the promised land and they could defeat the enemies and get the promised land that God had promised them. So God sanctifies them in the wilderness, takes care of them, provides them manna, right, for 40 years. It was a sanctifying process till all the doubters died off and they had a new generation. It was a sanctifying process. He says, it was I who knew you in the wilderness and the land of drought. Like, I was the one that took care of you for those 40 years. No idol would have done that. In fact, an idol would have just let you head completely into destruction and then would have abandoned you in your time of need. I was the one that actually practiced a sanctifying process with you. Just a side note. Who's so damaging about idols? They never sanctify us. They don't. You know what idols let us do? They let us pull into sin even further. And let's pull into sin even further until we absolutely destroy our lives. That's what idols do. What does, what does Jesus do? He, get, he pulls us from the idols. Because he knows in the end those idols will never satisfy. They'll never sanctify. They'll never draw us from, from sin unto the Lord. And which, by the way, in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus... Your life should be a sanctified life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Sanctification means that you're daily setting yourself apart from sin under Christ. Like, if you're in Christ, there should be a noticeable difference in you through the years. Perfection, no. I always kind of tell people it's like this. The sanctified life is this kind of like, sometimes you're taking three steps forward, one step back. Sometimes you're taking five steps forward, two steps back. But in the end, if you look at a big graph of your life, you may be doing like the stock market, right? But when you see overall, you're trending upwards. That's what God was doing with Israel in the wilderness. He was sanctifying them. Their idols never brought sanctification. In fact, all their idols did was bring immediate destruction. Point number seven. Israel's idols, they only encourage more pride. So we discover that pride is, is the root of sin, actually. Their pride, their exaltation of self is what led them to do this idolatry. This idolatry is going to bring them to destruction. But here's one thing about idols. They just encourage more pride, which encourages more sin. Look in verse 6. But when they had grazed, God took really good care of Israel. And they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me, God says. Their heart 
but was lifted up. Lifted up. It's, it, it, so for Israel, God took such good care of them. And God took such good care of them because God had made a promise that from these people, he would build a great nation. And from this nation, other nations would be brought to Yahweh. And from, these, and from Israel would come the Messiah that would be the ultimate king that would ring in righteousness. That was what God was doing. But Israel instead looked at God's work in their life and said, wait a minute. It's not, he's not doing this to make something much of himself. He's doing this so I can make much of me, right? It's kind of like what they call cat and dog theology. Have you ever heard of cat and dog theology, right? It's kind of like this. Apologies to the cat lovers here, right? But look at the average dog. If you feed the, the average dog, right, or you do anything to the average dog, do you notice that dogs don't really harbor grudges most of the time? Like you do, you can kick a dog, and they're just going to come like wagging their tail back at you and just love you most of the time, right? It, because for a dog, it's like my master feeds me, he must be in control. It must be all about him, right? So whenever the master walks in the door, the dog just comes running to it, right? I mean, that's what dogs typically do, right? Because they, they, they think like my master feeds me, he does, he must be God. Take a cat, for instance. Rarely do cats meet you at the front door, right? Sometimes the cats are kind of like, well, when I want you, I'll come around. But if I, if, if I don't want you, get away, right? You ever notice that with a cat? It's like you feed a cat and the cat goes, oh, my master feeds me because I'm God, right? That's what a cat thinks, right? A dog thinks my master feeds me. He must be God. Well, this was Israel. Israel was being taken care of by the Lord so graciously. And they thought like a cat thought. They thought, well, he takes such good care of me. I must be God. You know what? I must be able to, to worship these idols. I must be able to do what I want. Like, if, if, if he didn't want this, there wouldn't be such good things in my life. Yeah, just because there's good things in your life doesn't mean you can presume on God's grace. That could be actually Romans. The book of Romans says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Like if you're walking in sin right now and you're wondering like, man, nothing bad has happened to me yet. Man, I keep walking in sin. I must be God. I'm just telling you the reason God's judgment and wrath hasn't come against you because it could be his kindness trying to draw you, his kindness that you're kind of like, man, I, I should have his wrath by now. I mean, growing in Christ for me since age 16 I am more surprised that more wrath hasn't hit my life. And you know what that's done? That's created something different in me. That's the kindness of God where there's, I've, I'm getting far better when I, than what I deserve. So he says this. Their heart was lifted up. They forgot me. They had kind of cat theology, right? Apologies to the cat lovers here, right? <clears throat> Pray for your cats. Maybe they'll repent, right? Oh, wait a minute. They can't do that. Okay. Just go get another cat. Okay, so <laughs> how do I solve that? Go to the pound today and get another cat. Find one that find that find the one that doesn't think it's God. Can you tell we don't have cats in our house, right? <clears throat> so look at verse seven, eight, and nine. So here's what we've seen. Israel <laughs> pride leads Israel to their idolatry. Idolatry grows, idolatry evolves, idolatry is fleeting, idolatry cannot save. It does not sanctify. The Israel's idols only encourage more pride, which encourages more destruction. And this is my eighth point. Israel's idols ultimately bring them destruction. Look at verse number seven. So I am, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. Apex predators. 
Yahweh's basically saying, Israel, you forced this. I've done everything I could not to do this. But I am a holy God. And God's holiness cannot overpass sin. People all the time think like, well, God's loving. He'd never judge sin. If he is not, if he's a loving God, he must judge sin, right? You would never say a judge is a good judge if a judge wasn't just with what he did, right? If you take a pedophile and put him before a judge, and a judge in our country looks at a pedophile and goes, you know what? You just had a bad day. We're going to go ahead and let you off. Would you say that that's a loving judge? No! You'd say that'd be a bad judge. That'd be an unrighteous judge. So the righteous judge says, So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Which, I've never done it, but I've heard that if you ever mess with a bear's babies, like, it's going to be bad for you. Like, there's not a gun big enough that's going to slow that, pup, that mom down until she gets a hold of you. Just what I've heard. That's why I don't do a lot of camping up north. I will tear open their breast, And there I will devour them like a lion. As a wild beast will rip them open. This is frightening, isn't it? Isn't this frightening words that he's using? He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me. Man. Here it is. What he had warned them the whole time in Hosea. He's like, listen, this is coming for you. You've given chance after chance. God's tried, but he's a holy God. He will measure out his justice and judgment for the sake of his holy name. He, he will do this. But here's what I'd like. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me. Then look at this. Against your helper. <laughs> so he's like, he's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy you. And here's what I love about the prophets. They give you all this bad news, and then in the midst of it, they're just like, ah, ha, 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 ha. But remember... He's your helper. Remember, there's a way out. Remember, there's a redeemer. I love this. You, he basically says, like, listen, all this destruction that's going to come in you, you could have averted this if you just would have realized he's actually your helper. He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want, he doesn't want your rejection of him. He is your helper. He has done everything he can. Look in verse 10. He said, he said let me just prove to you that he's your helper. Like, because if you remember, originally, Israel asked for their first king, King Saul, and God was pretty upset with that, because basically they were saying they didn't trust Yahweh to be their king. Now, Israel would someday actually have a king. That was a part of God's plan, but that king would be appointed by God, and number two, that king would ultimately be King Jesus. But nonetheless, Israel wanted a king like the other nations. Israel wanted a king that would protect them. When, when Yahweh was like, listen, you're here in the land of Israel miraculously because I'm the one that has actually defeated the enemies and brought you in. Why do you think you need a king when I'm the king, Yahweh, that actually protects you? So he went ahead and gave them Saul and just said, listen, I'm going to go ahead and give you what you want, but I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be a really bad experiment. He's not going to be good to you. You know the story of Saul. It wasn't good for them. You know the story of the kings that come after Saul. I mean, it, not good for them. I mean, like Solomon, in the end, overtaxes these people, puts a tremendous burden on these people. Then you get the splitting of the kingdom, and you've got the whole northern kingdom, and they're just running into rampant idolatry. And what does it do? It's going to throw them into Assyrian exile. Now look at verse 10. He says this. He's just pointing out to them that, that, that like, I, I, I tried to be your helper. But this is what you did, verse 10. There now, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give us a king and princes. He's just saying like, you, you said you wanted a king, but these kings aren't helping you now. They're actually making things worse. I gave you a king in my anger, 
And I took him away in my wrath, referring back to, to Saul. And by the way, just look at the list of kings. I mean, even though David was a man after God's own heart, he was a murderer, he was, he was polygamous, he was an adulterer, Solomon, hedonist, polygamer, idolater, led to the splitting of the kingdom. The northern kingdom, all the kings were bad in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, they had some good kings, but a lot of them were bad and brought them into idolatry. Later, they'll be brought into, um, into Babylonian exile. Look at verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is, is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I just don't, you know, God's word is God's word. So I think this is very interesting where he says, basically, Ephraim, Israel, you are like a baby that's kind of like crowning, right? It is time to come out of the womb, right? It is time to do it, but you have decided not to. It is time for you to repent. It is time for you to come to me as your redeemer. But instead, you want to stay in that womb, love on yourself, and just trust your idols. And I don't know much about birthing, um, but I, I do know this. I mean, obviously, I'm a man, right? So I haven't been in that place in life. But I do know enough to know this. If that baby doesn't come out when it's time for that baby to come out, that baby will perish. And, and here's what he's, in just a symbolic way, he's trying to say, Israel, you're like that baby that didn't come out when it's time. Like, this is why destruction's coming for you. Look in verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, he's just saying, listen, you, you have some prosperity. You did prosper for a while. The east wind, Assyria, the wind of the Lord shall come. That east wind is talking about Assyria. Rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. He shall, it shall strip his treasure of every precious thing. Their, treasury, um, their treasures are going to be stripped. Their idols are going to be stripped. They're going to be hauled off into exile. He says in verse 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt, which is still referring to the, 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 the area of Israel. Because she has rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Just so you know, when you came and conquered a people, you killed off their kids many times, right? You had to demoralize people. You had to let people know that, listen, you want to know how serious we are about you obeying us as Assyrians? We're going to kill your kids in front of your face. Just so you know, this is how ruthless we can be. So lest you think that you're going to get together and get, get some kind of mob band and overthrow Assyria, we just want you to know that we're pretty ruthless here. So he says this, and their pregnant women are ripped open. But the sweetest thing is, is, is just a pregnant woman. Just a, it's just the sweetest thing, right? Well, they would go in and rip these babies out in front of everybody just to prove that, like, listen, you try to go against us. Like, I want you to know how ruthless we are. All this destruction was coming on them all because of their idolatry. Online, if you're watching this, listen. Is he your redeemer or is he your destroyer? If you're choosing the idols of life and, and saying, like, this is why I won't come to Christ because I love my sin. I love my sin too much. I love my drugs. I love my money. I love living a, a lustful lifestyle. I love, uh, I love my opinion. I love doing what I want to do. I love, I love living a life that's all about me. Friend, I'm just going to tell you, those thoughts are what are keeping you from trusting him as a redeemer. And the only thing that's left for you in the end will be destruction someday. But the greater thing is this. There is good news that God has taken away that sin. He has satisfied that wrath against you. Now, we read through this whole text. Did we forget anything? Y'all notice a verse we forgot? Verse 14, right? 
Here's what I love. Okay, any of you that drive a car, right, which is probably most of you, right? Um, and, you know, those of you who are just learning to drive, you know, try this if you want to freak your parents out, right? Take your hand off the wheel, all right? You would probably have your license taken away. But, you know, it, sometimes those of us kind of guys who are trying to see is our car in alignment. You might have seen your dad do this one time. He just kind of takes his hand off the wheel and you're just like, has, has, is, is a screw loose with dad? Why is his hand off the wheel, right? Well, he's just trying to see is the front end and aligned right. If it's aligned right, it, the car will keep going straight even when you take your hand off the wheel. Most of our cars are not in alignment, right? I mean, you take your hand off the wheel, what's that car going to do? Yeah, it's just going to go one direction or the other. And it's not till you put your hand back on the wheel that you head in the right direction. You tracking with me? So in all this destruction, misery that's happening, I love this, that Hosea mentioned something that applies to what we live in today, which applies to taking communion in a minute. So notice this, verse 14. It's a great verse. He puts his hand back on the wheel. I mean, Isaiah is describing all of how sideways they're going. They're veering off. Hosea puts his hands on the wheels and says, listen, but here's the ultimate hope. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Do any of y'all know where that's said in another place in the Bible? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great chapter on resurrection. Paul, when speaking about the hope of the resurrection, pulls back and quotes from Hosea right here. So all their idolatry, all their straying away from the Lord, Hosea comes in and basically mentions resurrection. Now, someday they would experience a minor resurrection would be that later on through Babylonian and Persian captivity, King Cyrus is going to return them. They're going to get resurrected and returned to the land. And so ultimately, in the midst of all the bad news that's happening to them, he's telling them that, listen, that God's going, to, God's going to bring you back. He's going to be faithful to his covenant promises he's made to Abraham. He's going to keep a people like Ephraim. You're going to be back in the land someday. But there's, that, that was the immediate. But the Bible sometimes has prophecy that's close up and then far away. And ultimately what he's pointing to is when Paul comes in and talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This resurrection of Jesus Christ is what Paul says. I'll read it for you in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For the imperishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now you know this part, verse 55, O death, where is your what? Victory. Where is your, O death, where is your sting? What's he pointing to? He's pointing towards, ultimately, in the future, the resurrection. So if you're here and you're far from God, or if you're online and you're far from God, and you're kind of like, man... Okay, fine. These idols are bringing me to destruction. I want him to be my redeemer. Like, is there, is there any hope for me? Is there anything that can bring me back? And I would say, yes, friend. It's called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, that's what's going to bring you back. 
Like what's going to change you from enjoying those idols to enjoying him, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? What's going to help prepare your heart for heaven? The, the, the thought that like someday you're going to have a resurrected body and you're going to be with him physically and all things are going to be as they should. What's going to give you the hope of not putting all your hope in the politics of our country, right? But having the hope that there's a coming kingdom someday that you're a part of and that your king has has resurrected from the dead to die no more, right? This is going to give you the kind of hope that you actually need to walk in his redemption. Are, are you tracking with me? Do you understand? So in the end, this is all bad news. But the good news is this. Resurrection delivers you from idols. Resurrection will raise your body. Resurrection will put you with the Lord. Resurrection will give you a better day of hope. Resurrection will, whatever you're dealing with in your life, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if we have the resurrection, we've got all the hope in the world. If we don't, we've got no hope in the world. You are not stripped of hope today, right? Every bit of news cycle you watch that gets you down, don't put your hope in that. That's an earthly hope. Put your hope in what's called a biblical hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can think of no better reason to take communion now than thinking about and ending about the resurrection. You know, when we take communion, we are celebrating the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And we're celebrating the fact that someday we'll be taking communion with him again someday. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a little bit to the Lord. And then in the middle of that song, I'm going to come up. I'm going to lead us through taking communion. If you came in late, we have communion cups out in the, the table, out in the foyer. Um, I, I wash my hands before I put all those pre-made cups. And, um, but if you want to run it under a sink, you can. At home, you can take communion with us. We're going to go to the Lord and just do, sing a gospel song as we prepare our souls to take the Lord's Supper together. And then we're going to come and take it in light of this resurrection, in light of Jesus is our Redeemer. If he's not your Redeemer, I would pray this, that while we're singing, repent, call out to him. Then take communion with us as a true redeemed follower of Jesus. Would you stand with me as we sing and pray with me? Thank you for a chance to look in your word. The redemption we have in you. Thank you at age 16. No longer were you my destroyer, but you're my redeemer. Thank you that so many in here, you are their redeemer. There's someone here that you're not their redeemer. They've not placed faith and trust in you. That you have satisfied the wrath of God. The glorious exchange that, that Jesus has taken our sin and we have his righteousness. Not, that, not just that Jesus died for me, but Jesus suffered the wrath of God in my place. Jesus in my place. Lord, bring them to faith right now. Let them call out to you in believing faith. Bless our time of communion in just a moment. Amen.